and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home went right up to my room slept for a day and then I woke up the next morning I spray painted my wall no quit me I remember you know there is no quit me and I won't you know I won't give up thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy and whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have you are listening to intentional performers with brian levinson where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self as we talk with them The hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, just want to let you know how you might be able to help us out at the podcast. First of all, thank you all for listening. We really do appreciate everyone who listens, and hopefully you're finding these conversations to be meaningful and impactful in your life. The second way you can help us is by sharing these conversations on social media. Share them on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, wherever it is that you're social. Send an email to a friend and just say, hey, I think you'll like this show. Uh, We would really appreciate it, and it really does help us expand our reach. The last way you can help us out is by going over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. That's patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show for as little as $2 a month to as much as $10 a month. And it really does help us as we continue to pump these shows out, these episodes out every week. So thank you all for listening. And I'm really excited to present today's guest to you. His name is Mike Ganino. So Mike and I were connected from our previous guest, Neen James. And Neen said, hey, Mike's going to be a great guy for you to connect with. So Mike is a culture and storytelling expert who helps executives, teams, and thought leaders communicate, connect, and engage. Mike's going to share his journey and his story, which involved working in restaurants, working as a flight attendant, and ultimately it was the restaurant industry where he really developed an appreciation for culture. He's had such an appreciation for culture that he not only speaks about it, he also wrote the book Company Culture for Dummies and has been named the top 30 culture speaker by Global Guru. So Mike is somebody who's obsessed with culture. He talks about it all the time. He travels the country giving speeches about it. And he also is somebody who doesn't put culture into this pretty box. I think culture has become a buzzword and Every company, every organization I go to says, oh, we really care about our culture. Mike is very clear that culture is about storytelling and inspiring people and pulling out emotion and eliciting emotion. So Mike also has a history of doing improvisation. He did improv at Second City in Chicago and improvised at other places and really has a background in theater and in acting. So Mike uses his high energy and high engaging workshops and keynotes that fire up the employees that he gets to work with and the companies that 
that he works with to really help them rewrite the stories that are happening in their own culture. So when people hear Mike speak, they often leave with real life strategies, which he's going to share with us today as far as, all right, how do you actually create culture? Where do I start? How do I actually pull this out of my company. So he's going to share that with us today. And he's also the head performance coach at Heroic Public Speaking. So he's going to talk about his experience in public speaking, both for himself and what he's been able to share with others to help them develop their mindset for public speaking. So Mike really believes in in engagement and starts with engagement. And how do you engage people? How do you engage employees? And he'll talk about how engagement is at the core of every culture, as is storytelling. Mike has a long history, as I said, working in the restaurant industry. He's worked at Protein bar, chow now, let us entertain you, potbelly sandwich, which we're going to talk about in this conversation. Potbelly was a big part of my teens and my high school days. And and you'll find out pretty quickly how we're connected through potbelly. But he's worked at a lot of different restaurant organizations and catering and event planning organizations. Um, But he is today's guest on the podcast. And I'm so excited to share Mike with you. Uh, So without further ado, I present to you, Mike Ganino. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, excited to chat with you. We chatted very briefly, uh, I think a little while ago. It might have been like six weeks or so ago. And you are in California, which I am jealous of. We have had dark gray rainstorms for the last week here, and it's getting a little old. We've had like the rainiest summer that I can remember here in DC. And uh, not to say that you guys don't have rain out there, but LA is certainly a nice weather spot. Uh, and I'm excited to chat with you and find out a little bit more about your story and as well as how you came up with this seemingly obsession when it comes to storytelling and communication. So this, this should be a lot of fun and I'm excited to see where it goes. And where I'd love to start with you is to find out about why culture, why has culture been something that you've been interested in and, and just unpack that for me a little bit. Yeah, well, th- thanks for having me. And we don't, uh, we actually, it very rarely rains here. So I was cleaning up my car the other day and I found an umbrella and I was like, I don't even know when the last time I used this umbrella is. I can't think of a reason to have used it. So and I have two umbrellas in my car right now, one on each side of the door. So uh, yeah, there's a difference there for sure. Easy to use. You know, for me, culture, culture started, it's such a hot topic right now. And everyone is talking about what culture does. And there's so many books that have come out and things like that. And for me, it started long before we were even using the word culture for it. I was working at a place called Potbelly Sandwich Shop when I was 21 years old. I, I was a flight attendant and an actor doing improv at Second City and things like that. And I uh, wasn't a flight attendant anymore because of, because of 9-11. That was my last, you know, I did like one more flight after that. And then we all got laid off because the, there weren't enough people flying. So they didn't need us all. Can you can you stop there? So flight attendant, let's just go there because I, I I didn't know that about your story. Surprise! How, how long were you a flight attendant for? And I'm so curious about what that experience was like uh, for you. Yeah, I, I did it for a year. So I started in um, September of 2000. I was 20 years old, and then I did it for another year until like the end of September 2001. And I was actually in an, in a plane. We were getting ready to take off at Midway, uh, Chicago's Midway Airport. We were getting ready to take off in the morning of 9-11. We were, I was going to go from Chicago to Denver and back for the day. And so we're on the runway, totally boarded. And the captain calls all of us, all the crew, and says, hey, we need to go back. And uh, that's it. And wouldn't tell us why. Wouldn't say something wrong with the plane. Just we need to go back to the gate. 
and we need to get everyone off the plane as quickly as possible. So we went back, got everyone off the plane, and then he came into the to the uh, to the you know where we were in the plane and said, "Okay, here's what we know. This just happened in New York, and uh, we don't know who it was. We don't know if it was our plane. We don't know any of that." So we left the airplane. We walked out to like the crew room, which is where all the staff was. All the TVs were scrambled, and I remember thinking, like, "Oh, this feels so weird." And the police at the airport were sweeping the airport and getting everyone out. So we went to the crew room and it's just like, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of flight attendants and pilots, like in this big, you know, it's kind of like a lounge and everyone just kind of sitting and like, I don't even think anyone was crying. I think everyone was like in shock and waiting. Everyone's trying to text friends to find out who it was. And so I did one more flight after that uh, in the, I flew from, from Chicago to Phoenix and that was my other flight. And then I got the note that was like, Hey, we don't need you anymore as of October 1st, because there were so few people flying that, that it was, and it was quick of like, Hey, we're laying people off. And so I think I got to take a chance to say like, I'll volunteer to do it, which meant I got, I don't, because of the union, there was some interesting way that like, if I didn't, if they didn't force me to do it, it was a benefit. So they gave me like extra insurance or something. So I did that and uh, it was fun. I, you know, for the year that I did it, I enjoyed it. It was certainly fun to go travel the world. I'm, I uh, didn't grow up really going and seeing a lot of places and didn't have a lot of means to do that. And so for me, it was super fun to say, oh, I'm like traveling to, you know, exotic locations like, you know, Austin, Texas at the time was exotic to me or Cincinnati. There's just places I've never been. And so it was so fun for me that year to really see uh, so much. And, and you know, I was so young that I, I was able to kind of like not worry about the, the schedule's brutal. You know, the schedule is very brutal for the flight attendants. The pilot's much better, but for us, it was like really rough. You could work 17 hour days on your feet, serving drinks in a metal tube. But uh, at 20 years old, it was no big deal. I'm fascinated by different people's not responses, not reactions, but how 9-11 has shaped people's lives. And, you know, I've, ha- I've talked to people who joined the military after 9-11. We had on a guest, um, who was a Muslim man and was living in Texas at the time and was shot in the face by a white supremacist um, as a result of 9-11. Um, so I like it's it's such a fascinating, big, big, um, and obviously I know people who who perished in 9-11. So it's this massive experience that that shaped people's lives but i you don't even think about like flight attendants or people in the airline industry and how they might have shifted and changed as a result of 9-11 i'm just curious like what was it like to be a flight attendant like what was that experience like for you uh obviously there's customer service involved you're as you said you're traveling all over constantly moving around uh what was that like for you and that what did you learn from that experience yeah, I mean, it was so, again, it was, I was 20 years old and I was, you know, traveling around and you don't make a lot of money either. It's not a very glamorous job. And so for me, it was just cool to say like, oh, I'm staying in all these nice hotels. I'm seeing stuff. And I, you know, had always been in the, in the, in the restaurant or hotel industry before that. And so the service part was really fun to me. I enjoyed that piece of it. Learning all the security and safety stuff was really cool. Like training was very intense. It's like, it was like 12 weeks or something or eight weeks of boot camp style training, like seven in the morning to seven o'clock at night. And you're, you know, learning where every single piece of equipment is on a plane and you had to memorize where's every single, you know, uh, every single extra, extra life vest, where's every single, uh, oxygen tank, every, you would know exactly where it'd be on like 10 different kinds of planes. 
so it was really funny but you know I, and again i was 20 years old so i was like in college age so it was easy for me to to grasp all of that but i enjoyed it you know every single day you're working with different people there's uh, on the airplane meaning not not just the the passengers but the crew was different every day so i would walk on a plane and it's like oh i'm going to be with these you know four five six eight people for the next you know four hours if it's a quick turn or for the next five days if it was a longer trip and you had to, it's interesting. There's a little culture connection there too, right? Of like, you immediately either need to make fast friends and figure out how to work together, or you're stuck in a plane with people you don't like. So I think I got really good quickly of saying, okay, how do I just, how do I make the most of this relationship? Because otherwise this is not going to be fun because we've got to support each other up here. And you mentioned improvisation. Was that something that you were interested in early in your life or when did that come into your life? Yeah. So I think, I mean, improvisation as a whole, I think we all experience from birth, but as a, as an actual art form and an actual framework that happened around the same time I I wanted to be an actor. I went to uh, college initially for broadcast journalism and I was going to be a news anchor. I wanted to be on TV and do that. And like, good morning, Albuquerque. That was going to be my, my big break. And so I, um, uh, that didn't, I dropped out of school to be an actor. I thought, well, I can just short, I can just uh, speed through this. I can go in the fast lane here. Uh, and it turns out I looked really young at, at 19. I looked like I was a child. And so I should have come to LA. I went, I went to Chicago and, and uh, New York. I should have come to LA so I could have played like a teenager on a high school show. But for theater, I didn't look like a kid and I didn't look like an older man. So I couldn't do any of that. So I found improv theater through that. I found Upright Citizens Brigade in Second City because I realized, oh, in improv theater, I could be anything because we're just making stuff up up here and I don't have to look the part. I can just figure out how to be the part. I can move my body and use my voice. And so improv theater came to me that way. And that was around the same time that I was uh, in Chicago and was a flight attendant. So the same like 2000. Dropping out of school, uh, family, how did they respond to that? Hey, I'm going to go be an actor. Uh, give us a little more background on, on what that decision was like. Yeah, I think, um, I think the one thing that my family has always done is really trust me. I think like, not trust me like, oh, he'll do, he'll do all these great things for the world or something. But I think they've always trusted my own instincts for myself. And And I think even then, I I always made good choices for me based on what was going on. I was always able to say, okay, how do I leverage this? And yeah, no one really had a huge like, oh my gosh, like, what are you doing thing? I think, you know, was there concern about like, okay, if this doesn't work, can you get back on track? Probably. But it wasn't really a conversation we had. I think that they, they, you know, my mom and my, my grandparents who were, who were a big influence in my life. I think they kind of just knew like, okay, he's going to figure this out and he's figured everything else out. So he'll sort through this and and figure out what to do. And, you know, and through like a series of yes, and I ended up in a completely different place, uh, which is, which is funny, but, but yeah, I think they, I think they all trusted that I would either not figure it out and go back to doing something else or I'd sort it out. You mentioned mom and grandparents. Was dad in the picture at all? No, not really. My mom and dad got divorced when I was nine. And, uh, and he, you know, he's like a person who just wants like a simple little life. And, uh, we moved a lot and we were bopping around a lot. My mom liked less of a simple life. She needed lots of excitement. And so he, uh, he got remarried and lived in, we lived in San Diego at the time and, uh, just kind of 
not through any specific thing. There was never like a, oh, this is the moment and we won't speak anymore. It's just one of those things. And even today still, like I live, I live in LA now and I'm close to San Diego. And it's just one of those things that like, oh, neither one of us picks up the phone. Neither one of us sends a card. And then enough time goes by and then you're like, oh, okay, well, I don't know. So I don't know. It's In some ways, maybe that's cold of like, eh, whatever. Because um, nothing actually happened there. It just, you slowly just stop seeing each other and stop talking. And so that happened like right as soon as they got divorced. And, you know, through the years, we've not stayed in touch very well. Well, it's fascinating to me that somebody who is a storyteller and is a communicator, um, you know, just sort of has let that fizzle. Do you have siblings? Like, and, and if so, how do they think about those dynamics and those relationships? Sure. Yeah. I have one, I have one sister. She's three years younger than me. And, uh, and similar, like she has a similar uh, relationship with, with my dad of, you know, it's, it's, uh, and it's really funny too. Cause it's like, when we're together, it's fine. It's like, Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. It just time goes by and it's like, Oh, he doesn't like to call. I don't call. Uh, and I think, I think my sister has a similar relationship. She has, um, she has, uh, two kids that are twins. And so initially when the, when the twins were born, uh, he and my stepmom made more of an attempt to like be around and wanted to experience that. And then it just falls off again. Um, but again, it, it goes back to, they have a very simple little life. They live in the little town they live in, in San Diego County. They rarely leave it. And you know, it's, if something comes up, if like, if I got in a car and drove down there today, and walked in, it'd be like, oh, cool, let's hang out, let's have a beer, let's talk, what's new with you? But without that, it's like, okay, well, out of sight, out of mind. I mean, even, so my dad's name is the same as mine, and, and so I wrote a book that came out this year. So I even said the book of like, hey, look, our name is on a book. Like, that's kind of like the weird relationship I had with that of like, hey, a book is done, and it arrives, and it has your name on it too, dude. What impact did that have on you, if any at all, just having that sort of relationship with him? I don't, I don't know. Right. It's hard to, it's hard to like pull yourself out and say, Oh, the reason I do this is because of that. I think that I'm fiercely independent. And so I'm very, I feel very capable. I feel very able to take care of myself and get what I need done. And I'm I'm really independent in doing that. At the same time, I love an ensemble. I love to co-create. I love to build things with other people, but I also always have a, a belief that, if everything fell apart, I could get the group project done on my own. I know I could. I'd love to do it with other people if I could. And so I think there's probably some of that in there of feeling like, hey, I, I can be independent. I don't have this resource. And so I can sort out how to do that. I think it probably made me more thoughtful about the the relationships you do have in your life and saying, okay, the ones that are here, what works and why Why do they work? I have a, my mom, uh, so my, my mom and dad were teens, teenagers when they had me. And so I'm 38, my mom is 53, something like that. She's pretty young. And so, and my grandma, my grandma, by the way, was 32 when I was born. So now it's like, I'm 38 and I think, wow, I could have like a six-year-old grandchild. That'd be pretty crazy, I think. So the, my, my mom's best friend when I was little she, her name is Jana. And so she was her best friend. So I always just thought of her as my aunt and her mom as my, my other grandma, my bonus grandma. And, but they're not, you know, related. It was just my mom's best friend. And so over the years, like I'm super close to her and that's a choice that I've made. She's put me in her life. I've put her in mine. And so we talk to each other, we text each other, we've gone on vacations together. Um, and I think that probably the like 
the estrangement, if you will, with my dad just made me better able to say the relationships that are in your life, what do you want to do and how do you want to maximize them? And how do you make sure this is a, a positive, fulfilling thing for everybody involved? And I don't know, maybe callously, you don't have to have everyone in your life. So uh, I'm not that good at math, but it sounds like mom had you 15, you know, 15 years old, yeah. uh, something like that. Um, it sounds like she's had a big impact on you. Uh, talk about the values that she's passed down to you or grandparents have passed down to you and just talk about them because it sounds like they have been in your life and have had a big impact on you. Yeah. You know, I think, I think one of the big things that I really love about my, uh, my mom and what I learned there is really this, she has this kind of like love of life, love of like having experiences and she's always, you know, and maybe, maybe like not in a good way you could say, but I think it's a great thing. She has this thing where she's always kind of starting new stuff that interests her. And sometimes it interests her enough and she goes all the way through and finishes it. And sometimes she picks it up and she says, Ooh, this looks fun and interesting. Gets into it and says, actually, you know what? No, I don't really like this that much and, and doesn't do it anymore. And for me, that's refreshing because there's so many, like, I think growing up, you have so many adult um, messages in your life of like, you know, you have to do the strategic thing and do this thing and finish it. And I think one of the things I learned from my mom is you can try lots of different things. And if you don't like them at any point, you're not stuck with them. So you want to pick up painting, then try it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, do the next thing. And that for me has been a really cool thing because I've, you know, in my career, I've gotten to work in airlines and restaurants and hotels, um, in all kinds of different spaces in there. I was, I was a sommelier and a wine trainer and, you know, I've gotten to start several businesses and it's, and now as the speaker, I get to speak to all kinds of different things. And I think I'm better at all of that because I've had so many more experiences because I've been open to picking something up, seeing if I'm into it. And then if I'm not putting it back down and not feeling guilty that I owe the world to become a painter simply because I bought some canvas. Cool. I want to go back to improvisation because it's one of the more fascinating types of performances. What would you do before you stepped on stage? Let's say you were at Second City, which for those that don't know, is a pretty big deal in the improvisation world. I went to Second City. I think there's one in Toronto. Uh, yeah. Right. So I went there. It's very cool. And But I would just, I would want to be in your shoes right before you're about to go on stage or the day of, how would you prepare to perform at something that's different than um, traditional or classical acting, which you have lines, you have to be at a certain place. You know, improv is, is sort of a hot mess as far as like getting to create, but just walk us through your mindset maybe before and during it. Yeah. So, so in improvisational theater, there's no script. There's you, you step out, you get some kind of suggestion or something from the audience, and then you initiate uh, scenes based on that. And I think the big, you know, one of the big misconceptions about improv is that to be good at it, you have to uh, be good at winging it, or you have to be like naturally funny. And I've not found that to be true. What I've found to be true, and, and certainly what, you know, most of the schools that teach it promote is that you've got to be a really great listener. And you've got to be really good at supporting the other people on stage with you. And if you do that and they do that, then you're going to find the funny things. And I think, I think everyone has like six months of weekly. If you go weekly, you can get better for six months. And then I think at the six month mark, it's okay, this is a thing for you or it's not. But I think we've all got six months of get better at improv in us. And so for me, the big part before going on stage is really the training and knowing how do I listen? What are the structures? And it, it's interesting because we think of improvisation. We think of people who are good at winging it, making stuff up on the fly. But there are also people who are very structured. Like 
the reason that we can get on stage and make something up is because we both understand the rules we agree to follow. We both understand the style we're doing. And so like, think about one of the, one of the greatest improvisational moments in history is that scene from Apollo 13 where they dump everything on the desk and they say, this is what they've got up there. Right now that wouldn't have worked if the people there weren't trained. Like if they weren't trained astronauts and people who had built the thing, like you and I, couldn't have figured that out because we wouldn't have had the training. So in the moment it feels improvisational and it's like, wow, they're making stuff up on the fly. But there was, there was work that happened beforehand that made them able to look at this thing and say, okay, what can we do with this? And the same thing works when we're doing improv theater. There's certainly the moment before you step out, your heart's racing. And, and even today when I, when I speak and I do this, you know, a couple times a week, you still get nervous before you walk out there. I think it's a sign that I care still, or I have something to offer, but you're not worried about, well, I know what to do because you've had the training. And at that same time, you're at Potbelly. And I'm, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. And I know Potbelly originated in Chicago. And I know that because I think they came to D.C. next. Um, I might be wrong about that, but I believe that's true. And so Potbelly was a part of my childhood. I mean, we, we would go, there was a movie theater and right next to it was Potbelly. So I would get, you know, the sandwich with the double meat and the turkey cheddar, or I'd go pizza with the mushrooms. So Potbelly, uh, I, I love Potbelly growing up. Um, and I know you're also involved with Let Us Entertain You at some point, which also there's a Chicago, DC. We have a lot of Let Us Entertain You group. Yeah. Um, and I have some history there as well. Uh, but this isn't about me. It's about you. Um, what was it like working at Potbelly and getting in the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry? And was that right after you had the flight attendant experience? Yeah. So was the, was the location you went to the one in Rockville by you chance? You got it. I was the opening general manager of that location, by the way. So I probably got in that line. You know, I always was curious about why they had a bench like on the, not the <laughs> roof, but like. For, on top of the cooler. Yeah. So I was yeah. always like, well, is that for a musician? Is that for me? Can I go up there? So the movie theater, that was the movie theater we went to. And then we'd go next door. Or I would always get sandwiches from there. Um, so we probably, our paths definitely cross paths at some point. Yeah. That's fine. I was working. So I was working at, uh, I started working at Potbelly right after, right after uh, 9-11. I actually started on October 1st of 2001 at Potbelly. So I was fast. And at the time we only had like seven locations or something in Chicago, but there were a bunch opening, like in the period that I was in manager training, we opened a few more stores during that time. And we had the funding and everything to get ready to go to DC. So when I started, there were other people, I think I'd finished training and people started coming into the location I was at to train for DC. So they were people we hire who were training. And during that, one of them was like the vice president of operations for the East coast, which didn't exist because DC was the second market for Popeye. You're correct. So I have to ask you why I have never understood this. Like what, <laughs> what's the jump from Chicago to DC? Do you have any knowledge about that as far as why? Yeah. I mean, so, so not only did Popeye do that, like you said, lettuce did that. I also did that when I was running uh, operations in HR for homemade pizza company. And then it's also when I was the, the, the uh, partner and chief operating officer at Protein Bar, that was our second market as well. And so one of the things that, that, so DC rent is very high, so that doesn't work out in your favor, but there's a lot of lunchtime foot traffic. So if you're a spot that does lunchtime stuff, there's a lot of lunchtime foot traffic. You're relatively safe from recession. Like if a recession happens, you're kind of safe in DC. There's a ton of lunchtime catering 
So if you have any ability to do lunchtime catering sales, so for that like quick service, like polished casual vibe, it's a really great market because it has all of those things. And you've got tourists all the time. So you've got new people coming in who are trying out your restaurant all the time. Cool. No, that all makes sense. And I've always been curious. And I know, especially in that uh, sort of quick casual, we've had Kava come out, Sweet Green uh, come out of DC. And uh, but I've always been curious. I never really broke it down. So thank you for breaking that down. And, and thank you for bringing us Potbelly. It was, uh, it was <laughs> my, my childhood. I had it recently as well. So I still like it. Um, okay. So your job, but you were in the shop, you were in management and dealing with customers. What was that like compared to being uh, on, an, on an airplane? You know, I, it was, it was, you know, it's so similar, except you're not flying through the air and at, you know, dealing with safety concerns or anything like that, dealing with turbulent weather, dealing with people's anxiety. I mean, people get on airplanes and there's like a major shift in their energy. It's like, you know, people are anxious. The whole experience is anxious. We're worried about getting where we want. Maybe we're scared of flying. That doesn't really happen as much when you're dealing with a $3 and 59 cent turkey sandwich. Like you can solve things a lot easier. So, you know, that's a big difference, obviously. The other thing that I really, that was different to me also was going from where every, on every trip I was working with new people. So every single flight was a whole new crew and you would rarely see the same people. There were thousands of us being routed all over and you would rarely see the same person versus in a restaurant. You really do have this little culture. You have this little environment. It's actually where I started to get really obsessed with the idea of culture. I eventually, I was at that location in Rockville. Like we mentioned, that was the second potbelly in DC, by the way, the first was downtown. And that was the second one. So I was there for like four months or so. And then I moved into like a regional trainer and HR person role. And in that role, I would go from restaurant to restaurant, help them open. I would go back and check in on them. And I started noticing this thing that like the organization as a whole, we had the same values. We had the same mission. We had the same customer service. We had the same training. Everything was the same. And yet when I would go from, including like even the real estate choices, they were made by the same people. So we were, you know, you you figure out what works and you keep doing it until it doesn't and you try something new. And so all of these things were the same. And I realized, you know, when I go from location A, like I go from Rockville to the Gaithersburg location, which is another suburb, not that far from Rockville, Maryland, it feels so different. Why does it feel different? It's the same uniform, the same food, the same service philosophies, the same manager training, the same, everything is the same. And yet in one location, the employees were fired up. They were upselling people on cookies. They were, they were having fun with calling out shakes to each other. Popbelly has this kind of lively atmosphere. It's, it was an old antique store that turned into a sandwich shop and it kind of kept that vibe. And so the, it became so interesting to me of why was it different? And you know, now I know, the language I know now is that that was culture. But I got obsessed with figuring out what is it? Is it the manager's fault alone? Is it the manager's leadership? Is it the people in the building? They hired the wrong people. What was it? And what I uncovered is it's a little bit of everything. Culture is really about those relationships and how we communicate and the stories we create together. And so that started because it was going location to location, trying to figure out why do some work and some not. It's so fascinating. So at one point in my life, I sold ice cream wholesale. So I would go to restaurants or places like Potbelly and try to get them to buy our ice cream. And I spent a lot of time in Whole Foods and I would go to, you know, 10 Whole Foods in the Washington DC area. And it was incredible, the different cultures in each Whole Foods. Uh, And not just from a culture like we're talking about, but a culture 
ethnically, uh, racially, um, the way people, the type of people that were in there. And it is true. It was, it was fascinating. And, and we knew after a certain amount of time, like which Whole Foods we could probably sell our product to and which one we would have a really hard time with um, and which one worked for us and which one didn't. And uh, it, it, I've never thought about culture. As I think back, I never really thought about it at that level, at like the retail level, but it shows it's so apparent when you walk into one Starbucks and there's a manager there, like there's one Starbucks in the DC area that I know there's always like a, it's a couple that must run it. And they are so passionate. And then you see these, they're, they're working their asses off to just get everything done. And it's such a great Starbucks. So when I have meetings, I'm like, can we meet at this Starbucks? And then I'll go to another Starbucks and it will be like, you know, the person behind the counter doesn't care at all about it. Um, and to your point, it's like they all go through the same training and they all go through uh, the same approach. So what did you find? Like, what, what is the core of culture? Uh, and in the sports world, this is a massive word, right? Like uh, coaches are always saying, well, that's our culture. That's our culture. Uh, athletic departments, uh, this is our culture. And then, you know, you see a mission statement up on the board and you're kind of like, all right, well, are they really living that or is that just up on the board? So what does cultivate or create? What's the thing underneath the thing when it comes to culture? Yeah, you know, I think if I distill it down and, and I, when, it, when I wrote Company Culture for Dummies this year, it was really distilling it down at the beginning to say, well, what are we even talking about? Because it's not like, it's not like I'm talking about like how to do better PowerPoint presentation. And so, okay, great. This is very clear what we're talking about. When we talk about culture, there's all kinds of things. Some people think like, oh, it's an HR job, right? It's the job of HR. There's a culture person on the HR team. Some people think, oh, it's the job of the leader. Some people think it's the people we hire. Some people think it's the nap rooms and slides and in-office espresso machines. And when I was writing the book, I had to get really specific about like, what do, what do I think it is? And for me, it really comes down to like at the most fundamental level, culture becomes the things we believe. And then all of the stuff we see are the actions we take because we believe that. And so, and I think beliefs are just like stories we tell ourselves to make sense of things. Cause, cause get this. So like if you and I, Brian, if we went on a trip to Italy, have you ever been to Italy? Yes. Okay. So when you go, you and I here, we're, we're going to Starbucks, like you mentioned, and we get our coffee. We stand in a nice orderly line. Maybe we order mobile ahead and we pick it up, but we stand in line. We order at the counter. We're very polite. We move on. We wait nicely, all those things. So I remember the first time I went to Italy and I went to go get an espresso in the morning. It does not work that way. You, you pony up, you squeeze your way into a bar. It's set up like a bar and there's, there's people behind there working in, in, you know, full like tuck style outfits, suits, and you shove your way in, in the most Italian way possible. I'm Italian. So the most Italian way possible, you shove your way in. No one thinks you're rude. You're supposed to do that. It's not rude. You yell to the guy what you want. They make it for you. You sip it quickly. You don't sit there and like linger and pop out your laptop with Wi-Fi, And then you get out of there. You leave some money on the counter. Those are two different cultures. Those are two different experiences based on what those people believe the coffee experience is supposed to be. Now, if everyone walking in believed this is rude to bump into people, it would be a different experience. If everyone believed we have to stand in orderly lines and we have to do Wi-Fi and coffee shops are about this, the culture would be different. It's for me at the at the very core of it, culture is a set of beliefs that we take actions on. And those can be all those other things. Those can be nap rooms and slides and things like that. 
but it really is that fundamental belief at the bottom, which is where culture between two teams, two, ex two um, locations of the same business can feel so different because there's still some underlying belief, no matter all the rest of the wrapping you put on top of it. The people in that building believe something different about work and that's playing out every day. How do you tease out those beliefs? It's, it's not as hard as we think. Uh, the, the best way to, to fail at it is to ask someone what they believe. We're very bad at that. We're very bad at being able to explain it. But the big thing that I'll do when I, when I go in and work with an organization and they say, hey, we're, we're working on, we want to create some better experiences here at work. We want to uncover what's working, what's not. It's to ask people to tell specific kinds of stories. So for example, if I'm working with, with a group and I go in to, to talk to their employees or, or in a workshop, we're uncovering where the beliefs are, asking them, you know, what, what are the beliefs of this company? What is the culture of this company? Those are very hard for people to answer. It's, it's very difficult for people to answer. It's like saying, it's like asking, tell me how you know you're in love. And it's like, I don't know, like, that's such a weird thing. I just feel a way I feel. And the same thing happens there versus if you ask them for specific questions about how things work. So um, when was the last time that you were super proud of the thing you did? Uh, when is the time that you knew that you had to do something for a customer that you thought was wrong? Um, how, do, how do decisions about who gets promoted here work? Um, what kinds of things do you have to do to get promoted here? Those things start to uncover the stories that people tell that then you can weave together and see a pattern. So I look at it from a storyteller's perspective and I say, wow, we just spent the last two hours listening to all these different stories. Here's the through line. Every single person talked about how uh, how you present yourself matters a lot here. And yet we say, come as you are, be who you are. And yet everyone is worried about how they show up each day because they don't want to get dinged for saying the wrong word. That just happened last week somewhere I was. So for me, that's the place that I start with uncovering those things. Man, as you're talking, I just started thinking about emotion and great stories elicit emotion because emotion makes things sticky. And so I'm curious uh, like I always think feelings and thoughts, okay, thoughts, knowledge is in thoughts, but feelings are what often drive our behavior and our action. And so beliefs are beliefs, thoughts. Um, I tend to think of them as thoughts, but the thought has to be attached to an emotion. And so I'm curious how you play with emotion when you think about culture as well, as you're asking those people, you know, you know, tell me about a time where you executed at your job really well. Tell me about a time where you really felt like you were in service. Like that's a different type of question. Yeah. But isn't it interesting also that, that the same thing in two different environments can make you feel different emotions. So meaning I think that beliefs are the framework in which we look at things. For example, if you and I were in a car and we got pulled over by the cop, we understand the frame we're in the cops in power. This is how this plays out. So we automatically act different than if we were walking down the street and somebody came up beside us and was like, Hey, I need to, you know, did you know what you just did? I need to see your ID. And you're like, excuse me, who do you think you are? Because the frame is different. What we believe about that experience is different. And so the same thing can cause different emotions. So in the, in the case of a company culture, people working really, really late to finish projects and they feel like they're always working so much to get things done can feel very differently in two different offices based on the framework and the beliefs they have at Amazon. Amazon is known for having a culture of like an Apple too, of we work really, really hard at these deadlines. We are chasing them. We are doing it, but we're doing some of the biggest stuff. And so if they can connect with their employees around, 
we're not doing this because we believe we need to get the most out of you for the, for the lowest price. We're doing this because we really want to change some stuff in the world. And if that's cool to you, then join us. And, and it's important for them at the beginning to make sure that those two stories match. What do you want your work experience to be like? And are we that? Because somewhere else like Zappos, it's a very different culture. So the same thing happening where you're at your desk working all the time and doing things could feel very different in those two places based on your beliefs about what is going on. Yeah, I think your Italy Starbucks is a really good example, right? So if we believe that this is how the coffee shop's supposed to be, then our emotion will be, yeah, like get in line, like, or don't get in line, right? And go fight for your coffee. But if we believe that it's supposed to be a line, it's supposed to be really orderly, then our emotion might be anger or frustration or, or right. bitterness or whatever it might be. What do you do with companies that don't, aren't, clear on their culture and are mismatched and um, are all over the place? How, do, how can you help them? Yeah. Well, the good thing is, is that what I always say, sometimes I'll get a, I'll get an email or I'll, someone will come up to me after a speech and say, Oh, you know, we've been thinking about that. We've been, we've been wanting to like start creating our culture. It's like, Oh no, 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 no. You've got a culture. You just aren't intentional about it. And you haven't given any thought. It's the same way that like when I, when I teach a storytelling and communication, it's impossible for us not to communicate. We are always saying something the way we sit, the way we talk, the way we show up, the way we prepare, the words we use, we're always communicating something to other people about who we are. And we are very good as humans about picking that up. We don't always, we don't always understand it the way it was meant, but we can't avoid uh, filtering and trying to understand situations. And we can't avoid communicating the same way that when you put people together, you can't avoid creating some kind of culture. Now, what they need to do is they need to get really good at listening to the stories at work because that'll give you signs about where is the culture today and through that to say, okay, so what do we, what works here? What doesn't work? And I think I approach this a little bit differently than a lot of people do because a lot of folks in the culture space will say, okay, let's get clear on your mission and your vision and this and that. What I do is I get clear at the beginning to say, well, what's not working? Like, why are we even talking? Because you didn't come to me just because you think the same reason, like when I work with people on storytelling and, and uh, communication, you didn't come to me because you just think storytelling is cool. You came to me because you're not getting a result. You're not selling products. You're not engaging your team. You're not doing well. You came to me for a reason. The same way that I don't believe people come to me to say, hey, we would, you know, no one's ever come and said, our improv is broken. Can you come improve our improvisation at work? And when they do come and say, we want to fix the culture, I want to say, what is a very specific issue that's going on? Let's use that to work through the culture. And what I see then is, oh, this is how we interact here. This is where things are breaking down. This is why this is going on. So I never take on a, a, a workshop client or a like advisory client if they can't tell me, what, is, what do you hope improves because of culture? Because otherwise this becomes just a fluffy thing that we're doing because it's nice to have pretty words on the wall and in a handbook. It has to have some business result, whether that's employee engagement, right? I know how to fix that with stories. We need to tell them the kind of stories that get them fired up and help them understand it. We need alignment. Whether it's recruiting people, great. We need to tell better stories about what it's like to be an employee here, not put our culture on a page with a bunch of words. We need to use, I was at speaking to the spa industry, uh, spas and resorts. And I said, this is an industry that, that like the restaurant and hotel industry is struggling with, with kind of entry level employees, finding them and getting them and engaging them. And I said, how many of you have a careers page? Most of the room raised their hand, of course. How many of you on your careers page mentioned something about your culture and you know your values or something? Half the room raised their hand. And I said, how many of you 
have any videos on that page or have any actual employees talking about what it looks like. You want to know how many hands in a room of a couple hundred people? Zero. Zero. And yet we know that we need people to be engaged. We need them to understand what it's like to work here, but we're not telling any of those stories. And so those kinds of things are the things that we've got to kind of bring to life when we think about how do we use culture to solve issues? We've got to focus on real issues. What you're talking about now is interesting, which is technology. So you've been, you've been at this for a while now. How has technology changed how you're thinking about storytelling and uh, culture? Yeah. I mean, the, the great thing about technology is that it allows us to amplify and reach people we couldn't reach before. And so that, that's the big change. Obviously, we can, we can if, if I wanted to way back, even if I think back to like Potbelly DC days, if I wanted to do a job fair or something, I would have to print flyers and go take them somewhere. This was even before like Craigslist. I think we weren't using stuff like that. We had to go take them to the high school or take them to the to Montgomery College and say, hey, can we come speak to your students and do this? What we said during that, if it was effective, was probably great stories. Let's talk about what it's like to work here. Let's talk about what your experience is going to be, what you're going to learn, who you're going to work with, what work is going to be like every day. If we were doing a good job at storytelling, it would have been that. I think what technology has allowed us to do is capture those stories and amplify them. We can now tell them more quickly. We can tell them to more people. We can put them in more places. And I think it's and the quality of some of these video tools, by the way, if we're talking about video specifically, it allows us to really, really create an even more robust, uh, multi-layered story by adding some music and doing some cuts of different people that we wouldn't necessarily be able to take with us to a job fair. Well, I've been curious about podcasting and how podcasting will infiltrate the corporate world. And I think of a Google or an Amazon or an Apple, as you were talking about earlier, it's like they could have a five or 10 minute podcast every morning, either with an employee or a subject that they're that they're discussing or a story of great customer service, you know, it could be, they might already be doing this. I don't know, but like Google could have their own podcast. that says stories for Google employees and, you know, literally just share the, the best stories or the nightmares. Right. And so the way to amplify now with technology, the fact that we all walk around now with these computers in our pocket uh, gives us a lot of opportunity to share our our stories and share our culture. And I mean, anyone that listens to podcasting is interested in, in stories. So what we're doing right now is, is storytelling essentially. Um, So I, I, I'm just so fascinated by how technology will impact culture, especially for big companies that, you know, how does a Google or Apple or Amazon maintain their culture in, if they're in India or they're in China or wherever they are, um, how do you, maintain your culture. And I know for small companies that are trying to grow and grow fast, they're always talking about, you mentioned Potbelly earlier. It's like, how do we at Potbelly still have the feel of a mom and pop shop when we are now a hundred stores all over the country? I think it's a massive challenge that uh, restaurants or anyone in the service industry probably deals with. Um, Have you run into that in your work and them trying to scale and also uh, keep what got them there to help them get to where they want to go? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big things that I'll work on. So let's say that you're a startup, you're a tech startup, and now you've gone from, you know, five people in a garage who every day it was really clear what we're doing, where we're headed, why we're doing it. The faces of your customers were real people that you knew. You had a little cork board with who you were 
who you were calling, who you were onboarding, who was a client. You had all of those things. And so the stories there happen and you talk about it and you're listening and you're all there. As you grow, that starts to get watered down. The, the why are we doing this? Who are we? Who do we actually do it for? What is our customer dealing with every day? Why are we trying to solve problems for them in the first place? Those things get watered down. They get they get unclear and people become unaligned. And so a, a big part of the group that I do workshops with are people in that in that space where it's like, oh, we went from five to 50 to 100 to 200. Now we got a thousand people. And guess what? We are all telling different stories about who we are, what we are. And I believe that the employee engagement issue comes from that. We've been spending so much money the last 20 something years. When we first started learning about our strengths and engagement at work with you know, Gallup poll and things like that. We have spent billions of dollars on increasing engagement and it has not moved the needle because engagement is not an issue of the employee. This is my belief. We keep focusing on they're not engaged. What's wrong with this generation, regardless of the generation that's been going on forever. But we don't do that in any other realm. So like, for example, on this podcast, if this episode goes out and it's super boring and nobody wants to listen to it and they didn't find me interesting and you said, hey, dude, like nobody liked your show. They didn't like your episode. And I blamed them for it. Would that be an okay answer? I said, well, that's that's because they're all awful, those listeners. They don't know. No, it's my it's insanity. insanity. It's insanity. Yeah. And the same thing with the movie. If we go to a movie and nobody likes the movie, we don't then say, well, the audiences are all stupid and they're unengaged and they don't know how to be engaged. They've got an engagement issue. No, we say the director wasn't engaging. And yet at work, we keep blaming the issue of engagement on the audience, our employees, instead of saying, well, engagement is just a factor of being engaging. So how do I be more engaging? We know that story and communication work more than anything. So when I work with organizations, I go in and say, oh, you've got an employee engagement issue. You don't need another software. You don't need a happy hour. You don't need an annual retreat. You don't need a trust fall. You don't need more high fives and snacks. What we need to do is align the stories that are going on. What do we believe about the work we do? And this isn't just like the Simon Sinek start with why kind of model. It's really saying, you know, I, I was just working with someone on their annual strategy. I'm going to be a speaker at their event, their big company event, and I'm working with the exec team on their strategy, their communications. And one of the things they said is that what happens every year is we go out and we communicate in bullet points and information. That is not how anyone in the history of anything has ever felt something. You talked earlier about creating emotion and creating something. That's the issue with engagement when we get up there and we talk about our strategy and bullet points. We don't talk about what it's going to feel like and who's going to do it and why we're trying to tackle this mountain. That's the stuff that's engaging. And so if, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, I've got an engagement problem and we want to blame a millennial or a Gen Z or an Instagram or, or some other social media or video or anything... I want you to take a step back and say, wait a second, how can I be more engaging? Because the answer is almost always in that. I love that. I love that. I have this random question in my head and I'm not sure how it's going to come out. So you'll just have to stick with me on this. But if you were to put into percentages and we're dealing with 100%, how much of that percentage is of, of culture is based on science versus let's call it art? I I think I'm going to play like safe here and say 50-50. I, th I think the, the science side of it is understanding. But, but again, I think the science side of it is still understanding human beings as social animals. So it's still looking at it from a, we are, we, we've tried to strip away. It's less, you know, in the last 10 years, we've, we've had to move 
away from this. But for so long, we tried to strip away emotion. We were told, don't cry at work. Don't have emotion at work. This isn't keep your work life and your personal life separate. Don't, you know, butter your bread. I don't know what that saying is something about that. That one maybe is a good one. Don't, don't sleep with people at work. That's not a good one that can mess things up. But we, we tried to erase the fact that we are social beings who everything that we experience is experienced through a social lens. We are, we are psychologically designed and physiologically designed to be, that's the reason, by the way, when I work with people on public speaking and they're so nervous, it is because we are physiologically designed to see a bunch of eyeballs staring at us as an opportunity for them to attack us. And so our body freaks us out as if we were actually being attacked by animals. So we are physiologically and psychology, psychologically, probably neurologically, all the ologicallys, we are designed to be social beings. And then we try to strip all of that away at work. And I think the science side of culture is saying, well, what do we know about how, the hum- how humans respond to different things? And it's why I use so much story in all the work I do, because we know how humans respond to stories. We know how humans see themselves in stories. We know how they tell them. So why wouldn't we lean into that to say, how can we leverage that? Now, the art of it becomes then saying, we're also social beings. And uh, I, I think, you know, when you're, when you're in the food world, there's, a, there's a kind of a difference between bakers and chefs cooks. Baking is very scientific. And sure, you can get creative and you can get artsy, but you've got to do that at the beginning. Because once you start mixing that batter and stuff, you put it in the oven. If you didn't figure out the science of that, then you ain't going to get anything. Now, if I'm cooking a dish and I try the soup and it's like, oh, I'm going to make this kind of soup and I taste it. And it's like, oh, you know what? It needs a little of this. It needs a little of that. Oh, I thought about adding curry at the last moment. You can do that. And so there's a lot more art on that side of it. And I, I think culture is, is a mix of the two. You have to understand the science of how people listen, how people absorb stories, how we filter what goes on, how we act socially. And if you do that, you can then work on the art side, which is, okay, well, how do we turn that into an experience for this group of people? And I think the big shift we're seeing on the culture side is that people need to be thinking of the employee group the same way they think of customers. We need to, I was, like I said, I was speaking at this spa industry conference and I said, why aren't we creating content for employees? You were talking about the podcast. Imagine if you created like a 10 episode dropped at once binge season of your team and how they worked through a specific issue. How cool would that be? And like actually wrote it into like narrative form of like, I just, I just worked on a project with a company like this on, let's take a specific thing you're working on. Let's documentary style shoot it. And let's turn that into some content that people can watch and say, shoot, I want to work with a company like that. I want to do that kind of thing. And um, General Electric did this really well. They were struggling with, they were struggling with um, getting engineers because engineers wanted to go work at Facebook and, and go get you know, a million shares to be the founding engineer uh, at some startup company. And so they didn't want to go work at GE because they saw it as boring and old. And so GE hired an ad company to say, we're not getting any applicants. We can sit here and blame that on Facebook. We can blame it on social media. We can blame it on millennials. But at the end of the day, we need some people to show up. So they hired one of the big, big ad firms and they created this whole story about this this, uh, character and these commercials that aired on television were about what was, um, I don't remember his name now, but what he was going to create. It was like the character's name. And, you know, he went, there was one scene where he went and he's like, hey, mom and dad, like, 
I, uh, I'm going to go work at GE. And they're like, oh, wow, that's so, well, that's good for you. That's good for you. And he's, you know, you're going to work on some boring things. It's like, no, no, I'm going to be like changing the way the train system works. So we're going to be solving problems like this in space and stuff. And they're like, okay. And he goes, he meets, there's another, there's another commercial where he's with a bunch of friends and they're like having a barbecue or something with like, you know, rosé or something like that. And he says, oh, I'm going to work at GE. And the friend's like, oh, that's cool. And they go to the other friend and like, oh, you're starting a new app where you put uh, hats on animals and that's your new app. And he's like, no, I'm going to be like solving issues. Like, how do we do this? And how do we do that? And they're like, okay, yeah, but yeah, he's going to put a, he's going to put a sombrero on a kitten. And it was such a great job of showing it. And it was art and science, right? The art was the creative of getting people in a room and saying, how can we tell the story we need to tell to get people to apply? And the science was saying, what do we know about the way people view stories that would fire them up and get them clicking? And it's just such a cool example. It's basically come work at GE and help save the world or make the world a better place. Like that's a, it's a pretty strong uh, yeah. pitch, I would think, to engineers. I want to just shift gears a little bit and find out about your speaking experience. So you mentioned earlier, you know, even today you get nervous before you get on stage and it's in part because you're excited or you know you have something to share. Talk about how you intentionally set your mind uh, for any sort of engagement. I went online and saw a video of you uh, talking in, in Charleston, and you, you had brought in pictures from your experience out at Charleston. It seemed like you were really trying to engage with the audience and say, like, this isn't some canned presentation that I do. Like, here I am today, and I'm present for you. So I'm just curious of what your process looks like when you know you have a speaking engagement and what you do from a mental standpoint to prepare for that. Yeah, so a little bit of it is starting on the, you know, I think, I think my best presentations are when I'm not thinking about myself. And so I'm here, and I'm supposed to be doing a job for this audience. And so I always start everything with this idea of, okay, well, what is the what is the core thing? How does this audience feeling? What's going on for them? What's happening in their in their world? What are they What are they looking at when they look at this problem? What do they see? Um, why are they stuck? How do they view it? How do they view being at this conference or this event? Like, what is their mindset going to be? Because no matter if you have the best content in the world, the 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 actual physical room changes the experience for people. Uh, the time of day changes it. So really thinking through what is it that I need them to understand. What is it that they want to understand? And so I start with, with them first of what's, what's, the, what's the big idea I've got here, but where are they at in relationship to it? How much do I need to help them understand the problem we're facing and what it does? And, and it, with culture, I, I have to do that a lot with, with culture, with storytelling, with communication when I do work on that, because we all think like, well, we're all communicating. So I just need to learn what to do with my hands and how to, how to, you know, shake my head and, and look people in the eyes. So they think I'm listening. And it's like, no, that's just teaching you how to act like you're listening. It doesn't actually change the way you listen. And so I realized that with that, with culture, people think it's, Ooh, this is an HR topic. So I realized I've got to go further back and I've got to help them understand what we're really going to be dealing with today. Because as soon as I don't start talking about values and mission, they're like, wait, I thought I was in a culture talk. What are we doing here? Talking about beliefs. I didn't sign up for this uh, meditation retreat. And so I have to consider that from their point of view. Otherwise, I'll never get them to, to change the way they think. I'm laughing because I love when speakers and people won't see this because they're just going to listen, but they use like the, the political fist. Um, <laughs> like I think of Bill Clinton, like I did not have sex with that woman. Um, and 
I always see that and I'm always like, that is so not natural or like authentic. And I've heard speakers where it's so clear that they've been trained on using their hands and doing this. And honestly, when I do presentations, the best compliment I ever get is when people say that they felt like I was talking directly to them and it yeah. be a room of 500 people and they felt like I was really caring about them. Uh, and sure, there are mechanics to that, right? Eye contact, presence, body language, of course. But at the very core, I love what you said, which is, am I serving them or am I serving myself? And uh, I always loved McDonald's line of like, when you go to the cash register and you say, how can I help you today? Um, I thought that was such a cool slogan. And I've learned, like I've tried to get high school or talk to high school sports teams about this. And they're like, McDonald's are like, no, Chick-fil-A does a really good job. Like when you walk into Chick-fil-A, they do a really good job. I'm like, okay, so I guess McDonald's has changed over the years. But um, it is an interesting, if you can think about who your audience is and how can you serve them, you're better off. How do you figure out how you can serve them? What sort of research do you do? Um, how do you get yourself ready and prepared to make sure that you know that you're delivering on what they're hoping you deliver on? Yeah. I mean, I prepare very similarly to the way. So, so the, the one thing about all this stuff, whether I'm talking about culture or storytelling is I really do approach it all kind of with this like performance mindset and actor's mindset and improvisational actor mindset. So no matter what I'm doing, there's kind of that vein in it. So I do it the same way I would if I was preparing for some kind of role. I, I, I learn what I can about their industry. So when I'm speaking to the spa industry people that I spoke to just yesterday, I spoke to all the event people. I asked them really good questions about what's going on. And then I made it a requirement that I was going to talk to five people who would be in attendance at the event. And I asked them questions. What's on your mind? What worries you? What are you thinking about? What's your biggest challenge when it comes to this topic? Where do you think you're stuck? What do you think is working? What do you think is not working? What's, what's at stake if you don't figure it out? And so then yesterday, when I actually delivered it, here's the other big secret. For the most part, the customization, like the talk you saw where it had pictures of me I had taken that day in Charleston because I was in Charleston, those are little bits. And so I've got 60 minutes. And for the most part, the 60 minutes is the same stuff because you don't want someone coming in and being like, I made up some new ideas for you. So let's see if it works. You go try it in your business and let me know. No, you want to hire someone who knows the information and has a framework they can teach you. So for the most part, my frameworks are the same. Where I've put in, I put in bits where I can then actually connect with that audience. So the Charleston bit you saw was there. When I talked yesterday to the spa industry, I was able to specifically talk about the things I know they're worrying them. And now I didn't change my talk. You know, I didn't change and say, well, you know, you told me this, so let's talk about that for you. No, what I heard universally was there's some communication issues that are leading to unengaged employees which is leading me to service issues, which is making me worried about my business. Great. That is a through line I can handle through my stuff. If they said, I'm really worried about, you know, the cost of real estate, I'd say, I don't really know how to help you with that. But the things that people are worried about are thankfully things I can help with. And so for me, that's part of that process is really going in and listening to that. I also do research. I look at their trade industry magazines. What are they reading right now? What are they seeing? What's the messages they're, they're getting uh, every day? Um, so that I have some information like that. I can reference something and it shows like, wow, he really knows us. And before we fired up the podcast, I was asking you about your schedule and you said, this is a busy time of year for you and you're traveling and you talked about going to Mexico and all these different places. What do you do to make sure that you're taking care of yourself 
um, especially when you're on the road a lot. What, do you have any habits or routines or activities that you do to make sure that you're mentally uh, where you need to be? I wish I had like a great answer for this. I feel like I should. I mean, I physically do like uh, I do like warm up stuff that that any actor or performer would do, any sports person would do to make sure I'm physically ready when I'm up there, that I can move, that I'm breathing well, that all that stuff's happening, that my voice is taken care of. I think outside of that, I try every morning to kind of go through the same little routine, which is somewhat grounding for me. So I do a little bit of journaling. I do a little bit of meditation. I try to do some some kind of easy movement, even if it's just jumping jacks in a hotel room. I bought a jump rope, actually, because I was like, oh, this is good. I was working out with my personal trainer. We used a jump rope. So I was like, oh, I'm going to take a jump rope on the road with me. And then I didn't bring workout shoes for some reason on one trip. So I just was like, I'll do the jump rope in my room. And I almost ripped the sprinkler thing off the ceiling because I was doing the jump rope and it got caught in the sprinkler on the ceiling. And I like ripped it and I was like, oh my God, can you imagine? And it was like, you know, 45 minutes before I had to be on stage and I would, everything would be, my suitcase was open. So all my, imagine going on stage and explaining why you are soaking wet and all your clothes are wet. So um, yeah, those are, those are the things I try to do. I try to, I try to, um, you know, I try to fly on the same airline so it's easy for me. I don't have to worry about things. It's all simple. I try to simplify that part of it, the logistics, so that in the moment I don't have to worry about that stuff and that's super easy. Behind your left shoulder is the phrase, say yes, and. And you have said that during this podcast. Talk about that phrase and why that's so meaningful for you. Yeah, so, so yes, and is the cornerstone foundational philosophy of improvisational theater. Whether you went to Second City or you took a class at Upright Citizens Brigade or you took a a class at Enter Your Hometown Improv Company, uh, no matter where you take it, the foundational rule of improvisation is saying yes and. It's actually one of the foundational things I teach in all of my work, my communication work, my story work and my culture work. It's the same foundational thing there. We just apply it in different ways to get different results. But the idea behind yes and in an improvisational theater setting is you and I, if we were in a scene together, we don't have a script. We don't have characters. We are making it up as we go. And so we need some frameworks in which we can do that. One of the ways that we do that is by always saying yes and. And what that means is that I am going to accept what you've said. I don't have to agree and I don't have to like it. We, one of the things I've seen a lot of new improvisers, they think that they have to say yes, meaning I love everything you're saying and I like it. And it's like, no, 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 you don't have to like it, but you have to accept that it is the reality we're facing right now. So if you walked into a scene and you said, well, hey, this, these, uh, these signals on this space show are all busted. Everything's busted. The whole board's busted. If I then said my response is, I don't know what you're talking about. We're in the kitchen. You're looking at the toaster. Now you're like, what are we doing? The audience is like, well, what's going on? Is, is, is this person, what's, it's the same reason like a lot of the schools will teach, never play someone who is, who is uh, on drugs, never try to play someone with a mental illness or dementia, because then it's very hard for the audience to say, what is reality here? What's going on? And it's kind of a lazy way to make things, you know, make, make up things. So in that scene, you said, you clearly, you, I gave you an accent. So that tells me something about your character. I'm listening. Okay. That tells me something about you. You've said that we are in the space shuttle and that the, the things are broken. So my job is to say, yes, all of that. I can accept it. I don't have to like it. I don't have to be like, yeah, this is awesome. But I have to accept that that is the reality. And now my job is to say, and, and contribute something. So 
yes, we are in a space shuttle, everything's broken, and we are spinning around here space at 500 miles an hour, you know, 5,000 miles an hour, like, great, now we've raised the stakes now, and then you'll yes and me. Yes, we are spinning around in space at 500 million miles an hour, and you'll add another layer, and that's how we find something. For me, that's a philosophy that I try to live by, and it is a philosophy that is part of every everything. You asked me a minute ago about how I prepare for a speech. I find things to yes and to. I find things that the audience is dealing with. I research, I learn, and then I say and, and I contribute, make it better. I don't just regurgitate it to them. I say yes and. When I am working with the team and we're working on how they work together in culture, how many times in a meeting do we say, hey, we want to hear everyone's idea. And as soon as the first idea comes out, no, that'll never work. Or we do the slightly more, I call this the Midwestern or Southern approach, which is to say yes, but. Like, yes, I'm saying yes because I want to be nice, but actually nothing's going to actually, it negates everything that came before it. Then there's also just saying yes. I think there's four here. So no, yes, but, and then there's yes. So let's say that we were in a scene together and you said, hey, this, the spaceship, the thing's broken. I said, yes, wow, it is. And then you said something else. I said, yeah, you're right. I'm putting all the work on you to create everything. That happens all of the time at work with employees and, and managers. So that's just saying yes, which is like, I guess it's nice, but we're not, we're not advancing the scene. We're not advancing the conversation at all. Yes, and is the best place to be. And again, it doesn't mean that if, if some employee says, hey, we should do this, that you have to say, yes, I agree. We will do whatever you said. But you do need to accept that they've offered that and then add to it. The number one thing that I advise people is it's super easy to do. If you're out there listening and you do any kind of brainstorming or ideation with your team, separate the creation from the distillation, meaning take the part where you were thinking of all the ideas and create a, an actual break, whether it's 30 minutes, whether it's the next day, do not try to come up with as many ideas as we can and try to judge those ideas because it is impossible. And so the trick is just give space because what happens is we start to do yes, but, and as soon as we start to do that, it doesn't take very many times for an employee or a coworker, even if it, this is, we're all responsible for this. It's not just the, the job of managers. It doesn't take very long and you don't get many chances of telling someone no or yes, but before they stop contributing. And that is the biggest pain I see in a lot of cultures. And that is where disengagement comes from, from employees. So I think that's a beautiful place for us to wrap. Uh, before we do, I want to give you a platform to promote uh, your website, your book, uh, if someone wants to hire you for a speaking engagement or for some consulting, whatever it might be, uh, social media, I know you're on Twitter, uh, just promote where people can learn more about you and, and the work you're doing. Sure. I'll, I'll say this. If you're listening and you think, oh, how, what do we do here? The, the If you find yourself thinking, you know what, I'm communicating all this stuff, whether it's to your your through your marketing, to your employees, on a stage, in a boardroom, whatever it is, and you think it's not landing, there's something here and it's just not getting the result I want when I communicate, uh, that's when you call me. You call me and we sort it out. So if you're wondering, oh, do I call this guy? That's when you know you call me is to say, ooh, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm connecting, I'm sharing stories, I'm hiring people and something's not aligned. I can help with that. Ways that I can help you, you can go to Amazon and find my book, Company Culture for Dummies. Uh, if you look up that, you'll find the book. And there's actually a whole chapter, by the way, about yes and and the power of yes and in work. You can go to MikeGanino.com. Once you figure out how to spell Ganino, it's very easy because I'm the one that will pop up. If you just Google Mike Ganino, G-A-N-I-N-O, the website will come up. 
You'll find me on you know LinkedIn under that name, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all your favorite places. Uh, so find me any of those. And if you wanna you wanna talk about doing a workshop or or helping create like massive engagement with the people that you work with, uh, just hit me up at mikeandino.com and we can get it going. Awesome. And I know for a fact that if you Google with one N, you'll be good. And actually, I don't know if you know this, but if you, and I've Googled you, uh, if you do Ganino with two N's, it will say, are you sure you don't want to put it in as one N? So you're actually in, in pretty good shape in Google land. Um, nice. so, so props to you. Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. We are on Instagram, intentional underscore performers, and the website's intentionalperformers.com. Uh, Mike, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, you definitely are talking about a theme that resonates with pretty much all the guests I've had on have talked about culture in some capacity, but none of them have really done a deep dive into it. And in a world today that, as you said earlier, the word culture gets used nonstop. There are very few people that are distilling it down and figuring out how do we actually create? How do we actually shift? What are we actually doing with our culture? And a big takeaway for me is like, yeah, you can have culture. It doesn't mean that it's a good culture. Like you can have a, a really toxic culture and that's still a culture. And so um, I've learned a lot from this conversation and I'm grateful for you uh, sharing your knowledge, your expertise, your story, and also um, your time. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and looking forward to many more intentional conversations with you soon. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The one thing about all this stuff, whether I'm talking about culture or storytelling, is I really do approach it all kind of with this like performance mindset, an actor's mindset, an improvisational actor mindset. So no matter what I'm doing, there's kind of that vein in it. So I do it the same way I would if I was preparing for some kind of role. I, I, I learn what I can about their industry. So when I'm speaking to the spa industry people that I spoke to just yesterday, I spoke to all the event people. I asked them really good questions about what's going on. And then I made it a requirement that I was going to talk to five people who would be in attendance at the event.